name come up? <laughs> Too awesome of responsibility for me.
you know, it's kind of the size of a pack down to the, and then he's, he's up and around trying to get, get through the snow. And then he comes in, of course, and there's wet all over the paws, and the snout's all covered with snow. Hard to see she had a flower in front of her face. <laughs> Are you speaking, Jerry? No, Dad should be here. I just looked, checked at his location. He's somewhere within four miles of being here. Oh, okay. Can't find him directly. He's probably taking the back road. Lord only knows. the lesser he is about trying to be places on time. It's <laughs> just, he just moves. Yeah. Well, when you're just home all the time, it's like a virtual time. Yeah. has no real meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Other than to get up and go to bed. <laughs>
Good morning. Good morning, Nice to have you all with us tonight, today. <laughs> I'm a little ahead of myself. Do a couple of announcements. Uh, of course, you know the offering envelopes. Uh, Andrea is not here today, so guess what? <laughs> Amen. Okay, uh, number five on the resumption of evening services, there's a little glitch, uh, nothing that we can't overcome. However, uh, because some of our teachers are out with illnesses, that's going to put a crimp on, on Sunday school tonight. So what we've elected to do is cancel the Sunday school, but those of you who are in our Christmas program may come tonight and practice. So that promises to be a really good time. Bring some finger foods for us, and uh, we'll have the opportunity to go over the program and, and get our feet wet a little bit and uh, see how that goes. So no Sunday school tonight, but we're going to have practice for our Christmas program next Sunday. Okay. And if anybody else wants to get involved, please see Jerry. Do we have any updates on our membership? Uh, how are the Lewises doing? Anybody know since last update? They're home. They're both of both of them are home. Yeah. And um, Ken, I guess has a bronchitis. word on Tom. We know Tom's hunkering down, so we haven't heard anything uh, difficult, so we, we can assume that, I guess, that he's okay for now. So, anything else? Anybody have any prayer requests or 
Uh, the issue with Mercy, do we have anyone that can expand on that a little bit? Jared, do you know much or? Not much, just that they're home. They they're home they're, now and she has uh, something in the lung from. Uh, that, that's, that's the huge issue. And that's uh, being treated with uh, antibiotics? Boy, that young lady is, is uh, a warrior, isn't she? God's, God's uh, given her a lot of difficulties, but also grace. And uh, I think that uh, her continual battle is, is uh, to be commended. She doesn't give up. And after all, that's kind of what we're supposed to be, aren't we, as Christians? Never give up. Finish the race. Doesn't say anything about coming in first, but it does say finish the race. So. Let's keep her in our prayers. With that in mind, uh, scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, the entire chapter. That'll be page 1072 in your pew Bibles.
you stand with us as we begin our worship service and prayer? Tim, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer this morning? Trinity, Trinity Hymnal, page 76. Praise <coughs> my soul, the King of Heaven. And remember, please, sing loud with authority and thanksgiving.
favored him. Somebody. <laughs> Naomi, please. A very good choice. Okay, it has to be Christmas? Okay. Um, Angels be of Verdun. Another wonderful choice. <laughs> what page? That is a good question. <laughs> I'm just a stand in here. You all got to work with me. 
scripture reading for today is taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. That's page 1827 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father in heaven, we pray that you would add your blessing to this, this holy and inspired reading, that it would touch our hearts, convict the lost, but reaffirm and strengthen the hearts of those within your grasp. Bless our time now in the name of Christ we ask. Amen. Our next hymn, number 221 from the Trinity. Now, you folks have to really work with me on this one because I have trouble with this one, so.
<clears throat> well, that's not a hymn that we sing that often, but boy, what a great message is in that hymn. And uh, <laughs> we need to sing maybe, no, not maybe, we do need to sing more of the, maybe the hymns that we don't normally sing, don't know as well, but we're missing out. We don't sing them. God likes music. Do we know that? We've got a whole book in the Bible called the Psalms. What is that? That's all music. The entire book. Song of Solomon is another. All right. Our text this morning is Philippians 2. In this short series that we're doing on the incarnation of Christ, we studied last time John's description of the coming Christ into the world. And it's like, unlike anything that we discover in any of the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, because it reads more like a theology. So in this sense, it's not a narrative, it's, it's not a story. And we learn that Jesus had pre-existence. He lived as the second person of the triune God, but he became human through incarnation. And we listened as John made five declarative statements about this one he calls the Word. The Word. Five things he makes known to us. Number one, the Word was infinite. In the beginning was the word. That is not subject to time and space. Did you know that time and space are created entities? They weren't always around. So Jesus is, when we say he's infinite, we're saying that he's not a creature at all. But the one existing in the beginning. That is before there was a beginning. Secondly, he was eternal. How do we know that? John says the word was with God. Always there, never apart from God. Hebrews 7 verse 3 says, He had neither beginning of days nor end of life. What a wonderful statement. Number three, he was divine. The word was God, John says. Well, you see how John builds his theology. He starts out with one statement, then he adds another thought, and he adds another thought. It just keeps getting better. The Word was God, sharing as the Son of God all the attributes of He who is God the Father. Number four, He was the creator agent of all that there is. A lot of people don't realize this. The universe was made through Christ. Hebrews 1 and verse 2. He was the medium by which things were. God said the word. Let there be light. And there was light. God said. Let there be sun to rule the day. And the moon to rule the night. And it was so. 
That's the word in action from the Trinity. And then number five, we learn that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Of men, John 1, verse 4. Evolutionists like to say that uh, we're animals, we people. We're no different than the animals. But John is saying, in Christ was life, and that life, that Christ's life, was the light of man, mankind. The animals don't share that. We share that. Now today's text, Philippians 2, is no less theological than John 1. But these are the words of Paul. And I'm being a bit more theological in this series because you're all familiar with the Christmas narrative. And you don't need me to rehearse you on the details of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angel hosts and the magi and the like. You know those by heart. So what I'm aiming for in this series is an understanding of just how tremendous the incarnation was. When God became one of us, not just the how of it, but the why of it. And the consequences of Emmanuel, God with us, invading our world. So as we come to our study today, we're going to consider the subject down from his glory. And as we do, let's ask the Lord to bless us. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. They teach us of the where, when, and how of what our world consists of. We learn from the scriptures things we didn't know. And in not knowing, we still learn the truth because you're the God of truth. The scripture says you cannot lie. Men lie. Boy, do we lie. We have this fancified vision of how the earth came to be. And it's all about man and evolution and amoebas and bugs and nothing about God but the scriptures won't allow us to do that God has spoken if we're ignorant it's because we choose to be ignorant but Lord we your people did choose to know the truth and to be uh, encouraged by it so bless our work today studying together in Christ's name amen Our text is Philippians 2, verse 1 and following. And in most of Paul's writings, the apostle usually builds a case doctrinally, and then he gives the application. That's the way most teachers teach. It's the most logical approach because any application of the teaching for one's life presupposes 
that you know the teaching verse, right? Here's the teaching. Now here's what it means. That's the normal routine. But if you look at this text in Philippians 2, you will see that Paul begins with application. Whoa. Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves, etc., etc., etc. He is immediately dealing with behavior in the believer. But beginning in verse 5, he gives the doctrinal underpinnings for such behavior when he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. And what follows is one of the most descriptive treatises in the Bible on the self-condensation of Jesus. And Paul could do this with the Philippians because all along in this book he has been encouraging godly behavior of the Philippians on the basis of their knowledge of who and what Jesus Christ is. Look at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 9, verse 10. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. These applications concerning daily life are based on Paul's teaching of Christ when he was in Philippi. Now for our purposes this morning, we're going to begin with the doctrine and come back to the application at the end. Because I think that's the way most of us learn. So what do we find here? Well, the first thing we find is the condensation of Jesus, his coming down to our sphere. Let's look at verses 5 and following. This is Philippians 2. Your attitude shall be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, now here he begins to explain, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself he became obedient to death yes even death on a cross Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When coming to a passage like this, it is, of course, easier to read than it is to understand it. 
The difficulty lies in the two extremes which Paul is describing. Namely, he's talking about the person of God on the one hand and the person of man on the other. Most people of the world have a low view of God. Sorry, but they do. And they have too high a view of humanity. The world tends to reduce God to nothing more than a superhuman being who is fraught with all of the ills and even some of the vices of man. Take into account the Greek gods. They're, they're, they were terrible. But God being created in man's image, it's not what the Bible says, which is the reverse, that we were created in his image. We who know the Lord for years have made God the subject of our study, and we understand in some measure the vast chasm which exists between the creator and the creature. I mean, the difference is like, like night and day. How can the creator become part of the creation? How can he, who existed before time and space, now subject himself to the limits of time and space? How is it possible for one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite in holiness, righteousness, and glory, be, how can he become a creature who is subject to weakness, sleepiness, discouragement, restricted power, even if self-imposed, and to become susceptible to all of the frailties of human nature except for sin? I mean, these are really mind-boggling questions to contemplate. Yet this is precisely what is involved in the doctrine of incarnation. The word incarnation comes from the Latin in, meaning in, and caro, carnis, meaning flesh. When we say, for example, eagles are carnivorous birds, we mean that they are flesh-eating birds. It's where they get their food and their sustenance. And they're not alone in that, of course. But it's this word, carnus, from the Greek. The idea is that God the Creator, whom Jesus taught is spirit, John 4, verse 24, assumed a body of flesh and bones and blood and tissue. He wasn't that, but he assumed that. Here's a question for you. Have you ever thought of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, as existing in eternity as a spirit being like God, the Father, or God, the Holy Spirit? I didn't think about that. But obviously he did. Incarnation is something new. It is something unique. 
It only occurred with the second person of the Trinity and only one time and only in what the Bible calls the fullness of time. Galatians 4 verse 4. And the Bible teaches that though God is spirit, in Christ God became a living, breathing human being. God became encased in human flesh. Literally. This is incarnation. The birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph is to be understood in no other terms. You remember how Joseph was contemplating divorcing Mary because during the engagement period of their relationship, before they came together, that is, before they had marital relationships, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, verse 18. And although that was so, Joseph knew nothing about the Holy Spirit's part in Mary's conception. What he thought was that she had been unfaithful to him with another man. And it took a visit from an angel of the Lord to convince Joseph to marry Mary. To understand that there was no infidelity on her part to Joseph. And to explain that her child was the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Luke 1 verse 35. That was Gabriel's explanation to Mary. Gabriel the angel of the Lord. In plain terms, Jesus' father for his human body was God, not Joseph. This is why he's called God's son. Just like Jared is my son. Now, is anything too hard for God? Can the creator of the universe not create a living baby within a woman's womb without the use of male sperm? Cannot the one whom Luke calls the Most High exercise his power over creation to fertilize a human ovum? Well, if you think no then your concept of God is too small. As we said earlier, and God to you is impotent to produce life. Jesus' own testimony ought to carry a lot of weight. Here it is. When Christ came into the world, he said to his Father, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, referring to the animal sacrifices, but a body you 
prepared for me. And then I said, well, here I am. I have come to do your will, O God. Hebrews 10, verse 5 and following. And the context shows that by that will, God's, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In distinction from the endless procession of animal sacrifices, which could never take away sin, could never cleanse the sinner of his or her guilt. The body of Jesus, he says, was prepared for him by God the Father. And when this was explained by the angel to Joseph, not only did he proceed to marry Mary, but the Bible says, let me read it for you, Matthew 1, verse 25, Joseph had no union with Mary until she gave birth to a son. What's that? It's telling us that Joseph restrained his sexual passion for nine months, never once being intimate with Mary, so as to avoid, as much as heavenly possible, the assumption that Mary's child was conceived by him instead of by God. And this abstinence on his part did preserve the truth, that's for sure. But you know, the enemies of Jesus turned it around to smear Jesus as a teacher. Here's what they said to him. Now this is the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so on. They're speaking to Jesus. We are not illegitimate children. We Pharisees, we Sadducees, we scribes, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. What a slap in the face to Jesus. We are not illegitimate children, but we know you are. We know you are. But Jesus went on to say to these people that claimed God as their father, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and now I am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. John 8, verse 41 and following. These religious hypocrites were saying to Jesus, we know your background. We know all about your mother's infidelity to Joseph. We know that Joseph isn't your father. You're a bastard child, not us. Our father is God himself. Their self-righteousness and their ignorance of Jesus' 
true identity was shining through. But we see Jesus pressing his point that it is we that it was he rather who came from God, not them. He stands before them in time space history as one sent by God the Father on a mission, and because he appeared in human flesh, they assume that he was a child of fornication. They believe the rumor mill. Joseph's abstinence with Mary, along with her personal conception by the Holy Spirit, had convinced them that Jesus was an imposter when, in fact, they were the ones deceived. And so incarnation has to do with the Son of God coming to earth and taking on a body which God the Father prepared for him in the womb of Mary. From the Hebrews 10 passage, we learn that a body was necessary for him to fulfill his mission of the cross and his sacrifice of himself on behalf of his people's sins. I mean, the cross is ludicrous if there's no body of the Savior to nail to it. If he's just a spirit being... How do you nail a spirit to a cross? When liberal theologians delete the shed blood of Jesus from the Bible as being a real and literal bloody sacrifice of his body, when they spiritualize it and explain it away in terms of being simply, oh, it's just a picture poem of sacrifice. When they do that, they destroy the gospel of redemption. My sins are real. Your sins are real. These are not figments of our imagination. And in order for there to be a true expiation of our guilt and a real cleansing of our sins, power, and its ultimate damning force in our lives, there has to be a real stand-in sacrifice which satisfies the justice of God. The body of Christ then becomes essential to salvation. Incarnation is not peripheral. It is a central doctrine. God coming in the flesh. But is this human body, which God's Son assumed, is that the sum total of the definition of incarnation? God was embodied so he could die. I mean, is that it? No. Incarnation runs much deeper than that. Second, Incarnation involved not only God's Son taking upon himself a human body, but also a human nature. Paul demonstrates this beautifully in our text, though the NIV does not make it clear. 
speaking of Christ, verse 6 should read, who being in the form of God did not consider the existence in a manner equal to God something to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the fashion of a servant, being made in a human likeness. Now the words very nature in the NIV in verse 6 and 7 are not the same in the Greek text. But the NIV translates them identically. Wrong. The King James Version or the English Standard Version uses the translation form correctly in verse 6 but again uses the same transition for the second word in verse 7. In verse 6, the Greek word is morphe, which means the form of something, but particularly the inner form, that essential, that abiding nature or essence of a thing. Thus the NIV translates, in very nature, God In other words, God is what Jesus was in his essence, his nature. And in verse 7, which talks of Jesus taking the very nature of a servant, the word is not morphe, it's schema, scheme. We get the word scheme from schema. And it means the fashion of, or the external fleeting outward appearance. What the human eye perceives. So both of these words appear only here in the singular form. Elsewhere they do appear as part of compound words, which help us to discover what each means. For example, morphe, Romans 8 verse 29. Those, for, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, morphe, to the likeness of his son. Now here, Paul is not suggesting that God has ordained us to take on the physical appearance of Christ. His outward, his external likeness. Now, the change to which God has predestined us as believers is to become like Christ in his holy nature. This is an inner change, not an outward one. Galatians 4.19 conveys the idea where Paul agonizes over the spiritual state of the Galatians in his words, until Christ, he says, is formed in you. There it is. Formed in you. Morphe. The word schema is found in a compound from 1 Peter 1 verse 14 where Peter writes, As obedient children, do not conform, do not pattern yourself to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So Peter is saying 
that our scheme of life, the outward words and habits, the manner of our dress, the manner of our actions, must not be fashioned after the passions which once controlled our lives. Different word. No, outward living must conform to the inner change. By the way, it's interesting to note that Satan is said to be able to masquerade, to fashion himself as an angel of light. Schema is the word for the devil. 2 Corinthians 11, 14. But he's not an angel of light, nature-wise, Morphe. No. He just looks like an angel of light. That's his scheme. Now I've said all that to say this. When Paul says that Christ existed in the very form of God, Morphe, verse 6, he is saying that Christ was God inside, in his nature, NIV. This can never change. God is what he is. God he shall remain. But when he became a man, he took upon himself the outward fashion, schema, of humanity, oh, in so many ways. The exterior. By the way, those of you that are in the industry operations, you, you know what a schematic is. Bring in the schematic drawing for this part. It's blueprint. It's a pattern. It's not the part, but it's a pattern. It looks like the part. It has all the dimensions of the part, but it's not the part. It's an external description of what the part looks like. That's schematic. Now, when Jesus came, he maintained the nature of God, but also took on the schematic, the picture of a true man. What are some of those characteristics? Well, all men are born of women. So was Jesus. Galatians 4, verse 4. God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Secondly, children in homes often have brothers and sisters. So did Jesus. Contrary to Roman Catholic teaching on the perpetual virginity of Mary, Joseph and Mary had a normal marital relationship after Jesus' birth, and Mark's gospel tells of how astonished the people of Galilee were when Jesus taught in their synagogue and their astonishment being due to this, this is their words now, isn't this the carpenter's son? 
Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Mark 6, verse 3 and 5. It's interesting that Jesus so appeared to be a man that they could only see him as a carpenter and a brother to the other children in Mary's family. Number three, all young Jewish men were required to learn a skill, and we've already learned that Jesus had become a carpenter by trade. Number four, again, men can be grieved, they can be angered, so too Jesus was not only once but twice drove the merchants from the temple because they had desecrated God's house of prayer. He knew how to get angry. Number five, men weep at times of sorrow, especially at funerals. And Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. Number six, men are joyous on occasion. So too Jesus at the wedding of Cana. Number seven, men are tempted by Satan to do evil, to capitulate to sin. Well, Jesus was tempted at the end of a 40-day fast and prayer time in the desert. Hebrews 10, 15 says, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And I might say both his humanity was tempted. He was tempted to sin, just like all of us. And his deity was tempted, you remember. If you are the son of God, the devil said, why don't you jump off the pinnacle of the temple? Because God said that he'll send his angels to protect you so that you won't even hurt your foot. Tempted both ways. Number eight, human beings are destined to die. And in Jesus' case, verse eight, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. A criminal's death for one who bore our own sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. So, in all these ways and more, Jesus' fashion was that of a true human being. He had the looks, the outward appearance of men. He had the inner yearnings. He had the struggles of a godly man. He assumed all that was human in nature except sin. By the way, just as a comparison, the first man, Adam, was a true man before he sinned. So you could be truly human and not a sinner. 
And that's why Paul calls Jesus the last Adam. First Adam became a sinner. Last Adam, no. Okay, but thirdly, how did Christ, who existed in the form of God, how did he get to be a man? How does one go from deity to humanity? Verse 6. He made himself nothing. The Greek says he emptied himself. Well, of what did he empty himself? Certainly not as deity. God cannot become ungod anymore that you and I as sinners can become sinless by an act of the will. God does not and cannot change who he is. This is why our Bible is as reliable today in its teachings, its commands, its promises, its predictions as it was when it was originally written. What Jesus gave up was his existence in a manner equal to God. So what do you mean by that? Verse 6. He did not consider equality with God, his lifestyle of deity, something to be held on so tenaciously that it would never be relinquished. Had he felt that way, he would have never invaded our world in the Incarnation. What I'm saying is, Christ could not give up being God. But he could give up. And what he did give up was his lifestyle as God. His glory as God, which was hidden by his humanity. His abode in the heavenly kingdom gave that up. But in coming to earth and leaving heaven and God the Father, he made himself nothing, verse 7, he came as a servant to the Father, also verse 7. This effected serious and drastic changes in Christ's life. What changes? Well, Christ gave up his privilege, relationship to the law of God. So what do you mean by that? Well, in heaven, Jesus, no less than the Father, sat as lawgiver and judge setting down the standard by which we as normal creatures would live and the punishments we would suffer if we disobeyed. But when Christ became a man, his relationship to the law changed. Now, as a human being, he was to be governed as much by what God had decreed as any other man. His responsibility shifted from giving orders to taking orders. From acting according to his will to acting according to the will of his heavenly father. He, he even says that a number of times in the gospel accounts.
cults like to emphasize Jesus' humanity. He's a, he was a man. 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 But they forget about his deity. More particularly in the role of Redeemer as the substitute for his people, this one who had never committed any sin at all was, and let me read it for you, made to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He became a sin bearer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It is no small matter to relinquish the position of lawgiver to become the servant of the law and to die under its penalty of death for sins that you never did. And no favors were handed out to Jesus just because he was God. No, now he was a man as well and as such subject to all the rules, all the regulations set down by God to observe and obey. 2nd Jesus in his incarnation in there in his incarnation, gave up his wealth. The Bible says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich, writes the Apostle Paul. Our text says that Jesus took on the very nature of a servant, Verse 7, Jesus' own words, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 21, 28. When we think of wealth, we often think of servants, don't we? A butler to open the doors and fetch automobiles from the garage. A maid to clean the house. A cook to prepare sumptuous meals, a groomsman to care for the horses and the stable, if you have horses in the stable, a valet to lay out your clothes and to run errands on a personal nature. That's the wealthy. Jesus came from a realm of existence in which the whole host of angels, cherubim, seraphim, attended to his every desire. Everything was his. The earth, the planets, the moons, the stars, everything in the universe. And the angels were his servants. But in his earthly pilgrimage, Jesus came himself as the servant. And he was so poor that he was always borrowing from others. A borrowed nursery for his birth, stable. Food and housing for his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He borrowed a boat to preach from. He borrowed a donkey on which to ride into Jerusalem. He borrowed an upper room in which to celebrate Passover with his disciples. 
and finally he borrowed a tomb in which to be buried. And his poverty was deepened by the fact that he took upon himself a very heavy load of debt. Isaiah writes in that wonderful chapter, Isaiah 53, verse 6, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was a poverty that bankrupt him. This was a poverty that broke him. Thirdly, Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly glory. In heaven, his radiance and majesty so emanated from his person that Isaiah tells us that the seraphim cover their faces in his presence. Isaiah 6, verse 2. John tells us in Revelation 21, 23, he's describing heaven. And he says, the city does not have the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb, Jesus, is its lamp. But in this world, Jesus looked like an ordinary carpenter's son. Nothing in his outward appearance betrayed his true identity and glory. All of this was intentionally veiled, forfeited as part of his role as a human being. But it was there. As Peter, James, and John discovered on the mountain where Christ was transfigured before their very eyes, and where for a few brief moments in time these chosen disciples saw Jesus as the King of glory that he was. Finally, Christ gave up his independent use of authority. We noted earlier that Christ took orders rather than giving them. But his humanity involved a whole lot more than submitting to instruction. Every miracle he performed, every prayer Jesus prayed, every lesson he taught, every kind deed he did, every confrontation with the superstitious and hard-hearted leaders of his day was the result of him being subservient to his Father's will. He put it this way, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Hebrews 5 verse 8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. 
So in all of this, can we not begin to see in the condescension of Jesus is humility. What he gives up is a message in living reality of who and what he is and what he wants us to know and believe about him. As contradictory as it may sound, Christ emptied himself by taking. Look at verse 7. He made himself nothing. The Greek is he emptied himself. He became a nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death. Yes, even death on a cross. I want you to note that his was a voluntary servitude, freely given. It wasn't beaten out of him. His independent use of authority was set aside. The theologian Kenny West put it this way. The only person in the world who had the right, who had the right to assert his rights, waived them. He had the right to say, do you know who I am? He waived his rights. How then must we, must we live as his people? The Apostle Paul was saying to the Philippians, and I'm saying to you as God's people, and I'm saying to myself, our attitude should be that of Jesus Christ. Verse 5. There it is. And the specifics are spelled out in verses 1 through 4. And they can be summarized in three words. You should have oneness among yourself. Lowliness among yourself, that's humility. And number three, graciousness. These are the things reflected in the attitude of Christ in his self-disclosure. But it's the dominant theme. The dominant theme is humility. Humility. Look at verse 3. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Wow. Other people's opinions better than yours. Other people's hurts more in need of compassion than yours. Verse 1. Other people's interests. Verse 4. Taking precedence over yours. Other people's sins less severe than yours. Other people's hypocrisy, less evident than your own. And humility by any other practice is not patterned after the people of the world or any other human examples. It's patterned, excuse me, after Christ. Our Lord was sinless. 
sinless. Yet he never treated sinners with contempt or condemnation. It is as though he identified with them and their sorrow over sin. He didn't see the necessity of rubbing their nose into their sin. Nor of constantly contrasting the way they were living to his own perfection. He didn't do that. Did you know that a person can grow in humility? Paul did. During his third missionary journey, he called himself the least of the apostles. His words, not mine. I'm the least of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. During the first Roman imprisonment, he identified himself as the very least of all the saints. Ephesians 3, 8. And finally, in the close of his life, he came to view himself as the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 So in his own mind's eye, he went from apostle to the least of the saints to the chief of sinners. In other words, the closer he drew to Christ, the more humble he became. And it is this failure in us to see our own sinfulness that accounts for the pride and the self-righteousness so prevalent among God's people today. It is the same pride which keeps people from coming to Christ. The person who doesn't admit that he or she is lost and in their sin will never appreciate the fact that Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. That's just true. The self-disclosure of Jesus is this. In incarnation, Christ the Lord of glory humbled himself by taking on the very nature of a servant and by becoming obedient to the Father's will, even to the point of sacrificial life and ending in death. Do you love anyone other than yourself to that degree? If not, you have yet to adopt the attitude of Christ. You may even be lost. Down from his glory he came to save his people from their sin and to preserve our race. I had to smile this morning. I was watching the news. And Elon Musk was on there. Do you know who Elon Musk is? Well, he's the world's wealthiest man. He's a billionaire many times over. He owns SpaceX, 
So he's all into space things. He owns Tesla car company. And he was talking about his goals for the future, what he's going to do. He's going to build a space station so he can control the Earth from out there. He's going to do a lot of things with Tesla Corporation. I keep listening to him and I'm thinking, you sound like that guy in the Bible that said he was going to tear down his little barns and build his bigger barns because he had the money to do it. But he didn't know that God was going to say, no, no, this night your soul will be required of you then whose projects will these be? And right then and there, this morning I was convicted to pray for Elon. The God of this world has blinded his eyes to what's reality and what's truly worth fighting for. If you see those things, you're blessed of God. you got a leg up on the world culture. May the Lord give you that insight today. Me as well. Amen. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for the truth of the gospel, the condescension of Christ, that though he was God in the region of, of glory, he emptied himself of that lifestyle and that existence to become a flesh and blood man with all the limitations of that except sin. So he got, he experienced all that we experience. Tiredness, poorness, hatred, cruelty towards him, misunderstanding, all the things that come our way. Lord, grant us faith to trust you and to praise you in Christ's name for what you've done for us. Amen. What is the closing hymn? Someone what is it? child is this. <clears throat>
Okay, just to get some clarification, what's what's this uh, program for tonight? Just the rehearsal for those that are not using the next time they come. Do we still meet at six? Or? Thirty. Six thirty. So that's at 6.30 tonight. Okay, we're dismissed.